0: Right. Looking up for a great consumer podcast, Consumer Choice Radio joint venture. Simultaneous, uh, we have myself, we have David Clement, and our colleague Bill Viets. Bill, how goes it? All good. Ready to talk about COP twenty six. So let's jump into that. We're talking about the UN climate change conference taking place in Glasgow, Scotland, and they've come together on various agreements. We'll see what really happens in the negotiations. All we're hearing about is. We're going to start restricting methane, and we're hearing about smaller countries in the Global South specifically that would like to have some kind of financial compensation. Uh, We'll start with you, Bill. You cover a lot of the activities of environmentalists and uh, what they're up to. Uh, What is your sort of quick take on this? And uh, from your good friends at the environmentalists, uh, how are they feeling so far?
1: well first of all yeah I'm, I'm glad that you got it right that it's actually in glasgow not Edinburgh, unlike what uh cnn was reporting initially <laughs> wolf blitzer wasn't quite so sure where he was
2: uh, who who makes that mistake like wow, that just seems like such a monumental mistake it's like saying oh yeah we're proudly reporting from new york city and you're in boston and it's like whoa <laughs> okay
1: yeah that, that when the when the Schengen uh, agreement was signed uh, then French president Mitterrand was in Luxembourg for the signing and then he he started his speech by saying we are so proud to be here in this tiny town in the Netherlands uh, which doesn't even bore the Luxembourg. So uh, it's not the first one who makes that mistake. Um, as per your question, uh, Yael, well, so there's a... Um, COP26 is actually quite an important COP. So there's been quite a few that are just sort of annual meetings, but COP26 is actually designed to define exactly how to interpret the goals that the parties have set themselves in the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. And what is interesting is that, well, there's interpretative differences as to who can reach their goals how so china for instance uh, they uh, they commit to net zero by 2060 and uh, and they they also say that they will peak their emissions at 2030 and to be able to do that they need to significantly increase uh, solar power uh, solar solar power electricity production so a lot of the countries um, are doing well by the standards that we've set. Uh, there's even a country in Africa, Gambia, which uh, which is actually within the target range, which is uh, very, um, well, it's odd for a country to actually reach those. And then it's countries such as Singapore and Russia, Russia specifically, that are very, very far behind the commitments that have been set. Um, it's a lot of diplomacy that actually happens at COP26. It's about like managing to tell your country that not too much is going to change for consumers, but at the same time also manifest that you've made some sort of commitments towards the other parties. So a lot of diplomacy and very little actual policy.
2: I mean, and naturally, Bill, the only way to ever to talk about or to have those diplomatic talks is by flying via private jet to Scotland. Everybody that is obviously the only way in which these diplomatic talks could take place correct I, I can't think of any technology that would maybe facilitate them having that conversation virtually so
0: yeah they could have done it all over, all on zoom could have done it on the zoom the zoom cast <laughs>
1: Yeah, COP26 actually emits the, the, the CO2 emissions of the equivalent of 7,000 homes. Um, now, the UN says that it will offset this by planting trees. I'm not exactly sure where those trees are going to be planted, because actually all the member parties of COP are also way behind their targets on planting trees. In the UK, it's 100 million trees a year that need to be planted to, 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 to reach the carbon like net emissions uh, goal. I'm not, a, not exactly sure where those trees are going to go.
0: Just add it to the tally. It's this kind of thing that keeps growing in the background. You know, it's like uh,
1: like compounding
0: interest. Uh, one part that is coming out of this, by the way, is uh, 10.5 billion dollars in a fund that is supposed to spur green energy in poorer countries. A lot of the money is coming from uh, the larger countries, but also some foundations. Uh, we have our usual Rockefeller Foundation. Apparently, the IKEA Foundation. Uh, so your furniture is going to that, and Bezos's Earth Fund and there'll be more money coming from different finance banks and all the rest. Uh, You know, is that, should that be a priority? I don't know what you think, David, if if the priority should be getting billions of dollars uh, to poorer countries or the global south uh, for green energy projects.
2: I mean, it depends if those green energy projects are scalable. I mean, the traditional argument here is that environmentalism is a, uh, it's a unique Capacity of wealthy countries. As you as you become wealthier, you then have the ability to um, take some risks on alternative forms of energy and care more about the environment. And you can tolerate that kind of intrusion into like, quality of life or energy costs and things like that. It's paying, let's say, a dollar fifty per liter of gas in Canada is is not ideal, but Canadians can tolerate that more than a developed country where that would just be absolutely devastating. So, I mean, the thing that really irks me in all of this is if these projects can be scaled up, and I mean, I'm not 100% sure that a lot of them can, certainly not in the short term. I mean, if we look at the issues in the solar market right now, um, it's basically in disarray because The world heavily relies on china there are forced labor uh and essentially concentration camp labor accusations which i don't know if they're true but they're probably true there's a trade war going on between um between the united states and china which includes solar panels which is kind of disrupting the growth in the u.s market and so how do you square that and say hey we want to export we want to send billions of dollars worth of solar panels to the developing world, so that they can plug in and have green energy. That sounds great, but there's a lot between A to Z here that requires some some serious logistical uh, heavy lifting. And
0: yeah, I and I think anything. I think we've we've probably done more thinking on that in the course of the last eight minutes uh, than they have <laughs> throughout this entire thing. It feels uh, like it. As the New York Times headline uh, stated earlier today, it was, uh, the world leaders have left. Now the focus goes to who will pay. And related to that, I have to ask you this question, uh, David, because there's a Canadian player involved here. Mark Carney, former head of the Bank of England, uh, former uh, head of the Bank of Canada as well, is leading an alliance of over uh, geez what is the amount of money that they said that they're going to commit now they're talking about trillions of dollars 130 trillion dollars in collective assets uh that is sort of the balance sheets of some of the world's biggest investors and banks and Carney has uh, been able to corral them into say that they will be working with these countries to help them try to get uh, to their net zero emission uh rankings uh, what do you think about uh, about that kind of Carney's uh, push in this? And very interesting, because we know he's been trying to jump into politics uh, himself on the electoral side as well.
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if, if this is something that the private industry wants to spearhead, that's, I think, obviously better than... Um, Sending money from the developing world to the or sorry, from the developed world to the developing world, and that's not that sending money to them is bad, it's just that the mechanism for which it gets to communities is bad because it has to go through governments in third world countries that are often corrupt or kleptocracies, and so. The, the private sector is probably better in regards to actually getting It's the same thing with foreign aid versus remittances. Um, if we look at, I mean, the same concept would apply whether we're talking about foreign aid and remittances or um, public sector, public support for green energy pro- projects abroad or private sector support. So that's certainly better um, than the alternative. Um, And it's done so, it seems like, um, in regards to Carney, without crazy suggestions about tax rates going up and all of that jazz, which we've seen predominantly from the progressive left in the United States. So I would say that would be one of the more optimistic things that I've seen uh, in regards to comments, and I'm fairly certain that Carney also said, Um, that nuclear plays a a really core role in this, which is refreshing because that gets left off of the table um, for really silly reasons. And I know, Bill, you've spoken and written about this before. Um, It just seems like a huge blind spot in regards to the pursuit of environmentalists because you have something that can produce clean, reliable, with the stress on reliable energy, uh, at very low costs over the long term, and yet everyone seems to love solar and wind.
1: And it's, and, and it's in the IPCC reports, every calculation that the IPCC reports have done in terms of the energy mixes necessary, all include nuclear power, even increases in nuclear power. But in the European Union, we can't even get ourselves to agree on how to evaluate investments into nuclear energy. Um, because there's something the European Union, uh, uh, green taxonomy. So this is basically how investments into green tech will be taxed. And the question that the European Union so far has not been able to answer is whether nuclear energy is green or sustainable technology for electricity production. And so the countries are still battling it out. The EU is genuinely divided in two. In terms of like who's, who who stands where on the on the question of nuclear energy, you have France on one side, and then Finland, where the Green Party has even changed a uh, uh, position on nuclear energy over the years, where they say nuclear energy must be a part of it. And then you have all the countries, including Germany, which is phasing out nuclear energy, especially since the Fukushima incident in 2011, and, and those are against it. So. Um, this also really sends mix, mixed messaging to developing nations. You know, let's say you're an African country and you look towards Europe to find answers on your electricity grid and what you need, and you see that the European Union can't even decide whether nuclear power is, is sustainable. Which it is. it is, it is, it is, it is, it is carbon neutral. And also, many of the countries that we call developing nations actually even have the natural resources to make nuclear energy themselves. What they lack is the know how. So, I don't think it should actually be that much about. The, the funds and the money, we could share know-how. We could send scientists to different developing nations and explain how uh, uh, best to to get started and build nuclear plants as quickly as possible. The Czech Republic right now uh, is, is is building nuclear power plants, first one to be completed by 2036, but then they get all types of uh, green groups and, and and flag from the European Union. It's like, oh, well, we don't know exactly whether we can count this towards your green targets. Well, it's, it's so obviously should.
0: And I think, Bill, you have a big emphasis on, you know, what the actual debate should be on that. Um, But again, looking at the agenda, you know, they're not looking at the merits of, let's say, nuclear or exactly how the technologies are, much like the Times headline says it has to do with climate finance. And I actually was listening to the radio this morning and hearing one of the delegates who was interviews uh, from Togo or some African nation, I don't remember. And basically, she was saying that the entire point of being there as a developing country, is you're there to bring home money for your country. (laughs) That's essentially what it comes down to, is they don't want to hear about the investments. They don't want to hear about, you know, this particular company will sign this contract with you. They just want to have a cash infusion into the treasuries of those countries so that they can help uh, adapt or mitigate uh, some of the effects of climate change that they say are more impactful and more harmful in those places. Now, I don't know if we're judging that. Uh, maybe we're just going off of the IPCC reports. I'm not really sure. But the climate finance thing, and, and particularly because it is so center to the negotiations so far, I think that's going to take way more of a role than you guys are. I think you're being very optimistic in terms of them getting down to the nitty gritty on the different energies and comparing them. Uh, well, I think you know it's who, just up the money.
2: You know who has gotten to the nitty gritty of how they're actually going to do it? China. Because they announced yesterday they're going to build 150 new uh, nuclear reactors over the next 15 years, which would be more than the rest of the world has built in the past 35. So you have the largest emitter in the world. Now, I'm no fan of the Chinese Communist Party, but maybe they'll actually get this right. And look at this from an environment perspective. So you have China, who has no record really to stand on, who could essentially be a world leader at some point in terms of actually reducing emissions um, and making a serious effort to reduce emissions, but then also factor in the geopolitical side of this. So you have like the the duopoly of, of the United States and China competing on the world stage, And one has basically committed to a massive infrastructure build out of nuclear energy, which beyond being green has incredible uh, energy production and productivity capacity with it. And then you have another who just doesn't, the United States, who doesn't necessarily really have the appetite to do that, uh, especially among progressives on the left who care more passionately about aggressive environmental policy than let's say republicans and so it's just like that should be the clear signal that like the decision has been made and the the eu the united states canada should just collectively decide that this has to be a play a bigger role in whatever the climate goals are on a climate perspective but also on a geopolitical perspective and and that competition between the eu the 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 G7, essentially, and China.
0: I see this more as a, a tale from uh, Michael Crichton's State of Fear, if you guys have ever read that. I think uh, we're, we're ripping from that book a bit.
1: When when in France in the 70s, uh, then-president Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, when he switched the energy grid basically all the way to nuclear, it wasn't actually because he had any environmental considerations, but because he didn't want the country to be dependent on, 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 on countries like Russia. And when you look right now at the gas uh price evolution, natural gas price evolutions in in Europe. So we're very dependent on Russia. Um, whatever happens in Russia, we we like. It, it also influences the way we politically talk to certain countries because we're dependent on their resources. And nuclear energy has provided France um, with with the tools of. Uh, Not just being more environmentally friendly compared to Germany, the the the, it's not it's not even a competition at this point. France is so far ahead by comparison, but also uh, in independence. And I think that should also appeal to a lot of countries. Um, It seems so obvious, but as you said, it's it's really not the conversation at COP.
0: One thing that uh, we you know we're really not even looking at, and we're not even thinking about is, you know, how do we how are we defining the impacts? of climate change and what's actually happening, because I, I don't like when I just read various news headlines saying, well, the scientists there said that we need to do X and Y. It's like, well, what exactly did they say that needs to be done? Are they giving you the tools, or are they just defining what the goal should be? Because the people who are coming up with the tools usually are political actors or economic actors. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, the climatologist from X and Y Institute saying that what we what's best to do is get rid of all the tractors that run on diesel. You know, there's, I don't know of many of those solutions, and there's a great article by one of our uh, favorite environmentalists and uh, political scientists, Bjorn Lomborg, about the seven myths about climate change. I'll just run through them really quick, and uh, if either of you guys have any comment on that, we can go into it quickly. Myth one, small islands are doomed by rising sea levels. Number two, extreme weather events are killing more people three climate lockdowns are a good solution oh boy uh number four electric cars don't harm the environment that's an interesting one five polar bears are going extinct on melting ice caps number six to bill's uh plate stop eating meat to save the planet and number seven wildfires are getting worse and proof of climate change
2: yeah i mean on that first one I think the, the way that Bjorn puts this is really telling because he, he says, okay, what were the most monumental things that happened from 1900 to the year 2000? And people will list off like, oh, well, humans flew for the first time. We went to the moon, like all of the great achievements and then all of the negative things, World War I, World War II, Vietnam, et cetera, whatever. And he's like, no one will say sea levels rose a foot. <laughs> which they did, but nobody like the, the human species just figured out a way to deal with that. And I think actually, Bill, you are, if I if I am geolocating you correctly, you are currently residing in a city that figured that out um, in regards to how to manage um, or adapt and, and mitigate rising sea levels. And so the idea, I mean, I'm sure you both saw the trolling that was on Twitter that was like, if we don't if we don't course correct in regards to climate change, this is what the U.S. will look like in 30 years. And they just took the Mediterranean and overlaid it over the U.S. And people shared it as if it was real. They actually thought that, like, 40% of the U.S. was going to be underwater. In a well, year they just want enough.
0: the U.S. to be like Europe. That's why.
2: <laughs> yeah, so it's—I it, mean, that's a the rising sea levels one. I mean, I— Again, another silly anecdotal story, but I remember being in a course in university and it was a, a third year political science course. And the, the person presenting was talking about sea ice melting and rising sea levels. And I put my hand up and I'm like, you said sea ice? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, well, sea ice is suspended in the water as, a, as an ice cube is in a glass whether or not it melts could be a problem, but that will not increase sea levels in the same way that when your ice cube melts, the, the water level in your glass doesn't rise. And like the whole class was just like, oh, wait a second. That's true. Maybe that's already factored in. And so it just seems like there's a lot of nonsense that goes on where it's like very dubious claims go unchallenged.
0: And I think to your point, and I have to harp on this because we heard it over the summer with much of the flooding. Uh, throughout Central Europe, Um, just being so indicative of climate change, when all of the studies that we have and the amount of deaths that we've had from flooding, when we actually look at how many people are harmed now with the technology that we have, with the dikes that we can put uh, in the river, (laughs) that we can build dams, you know, we, we can build the homes a lot better, we have much less erosion, we don't have that same level of destruction that we used to have with flooding. Uh, But all these extreme events, I mean, let's go back to the hurricane, I don't even remember its name, Uh, a few months ago, it was this kind of same narrative, and you can't really challenge that at the time, because then you're, you know, you're seen as denying science, when really, we're just going to have to wait a year or two for that paper to come out, and then we'll come to the same conclusion
1: anyway. I think Yal, what you mentioned about the communication is very interesting because you have one part which is the communication about the facts and the the communication about the solutions is not by the same it's not done by the same people and that's very important because very often what polit- politicians do is they take the IPCC report and they say well that is why we're doing this but that's not exactly how that works the IPCC report basically makes predictions about how to um, the, the possible scenarios in which you uh influence the electricity grid, where you influence like uh, uh, models in, in sustainable agriculture, and this will be the outcomes. And then there's politicians that have to make the choices. I think the facile deduction by that is saying, well, I mean, we chose one of the one of the possible scenarios, and well, that's what the science says, but that's not exactly how it works. And I would really wish that. Um, that we would shift away from the articles with the thumbnails where the planet's on fire to actually interviewing the people who did the reports because we would also get some perspective on how to go about this in a reasoned manner. Um, somebody really needs to take a look at the, the percentages between interviews with Greta Thunberg and her, uh, her people and the amount of scientists uh, who've actually been on panels on TV. Actually, you're right. And in the radio interview I mentioned, it had somebody from Fridays
0: for Future on there, and um, I'm I'm sure that uh, Greta Thunberg was a bit busy. She probably had a couple of interviews lined up.
2: Well, one of my favorite tweets that I saw was I, I, I guess Greta is like 17 now, or so, I don't I mean time just seems warped over the last three years, but um, she's like 17 now. So she started doing this four years ago or something along those lines, and she said we had 12 years. So we only have eight years now. And it's like that claim basically went unchallenged. And you have people who actually genuinely believe um, that now we only have eight years and that like a climate catastrophe is on is route if we don't drastically um, reduce our emissions. And we should reduce our emissions, of course. Um, but it, there's just no basis. And that went just unchallenged. No oh, one look, was David, like, wait a second.
1: Al Gore is still on TV, too. And you look, you look at his <laughs> predictions.
2: <laughs> I mean, like, if all of this was true, and the, 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 we would see this in the market, right? Real estate prices in the Maldives would just be hemorrhaging. They would be approaching near zero if they were all threatened of being underwater in 8 years and
0: of or in, or in Miami you know, to give yeah. a you know good example and i i've heard that from a couple of real estate guys that say well once the prices you know start getting up there there's a whole other issue there because you do have uh, state subsidized uh, property insurance which is a whole other issue in florida and, and uh, one of the biggest scams of all time but uh if we're we're talking about what what you're discussing in terms of you know the the timeline here Uh, This is also part of the Green New Deal uh, in the United States that uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put together in her resolution, which failed and most people voted against. Uh, But in there, at the time, it was 12 years left. Um, And one part that we haven't discussed yet, but I have heard in many of the other stories, it's not as much on the agenda, but I do see a couple things over there at COP, is the idea of climate justice. And this goes a bit far from uh more of the optimistic angles that you guys are talking about or even comparing the technologies and has to do with essentially you have the uh west the rich countries they've been doing all this polluting around the world, and these poorer countries uh and marginalized peoples in those poorer countries have been harmed by all of this, and there needs to be a reckoning to equalize so that we
1: promote climate justice you would what do you think you of that, bill you would you would think that that same line of thinking would also lead you to conclude that you can't actually lecture developing countries on their fossil fuel consumption because, well, you know, you fly over, or or deforestation, by the way, you know, I've I've mentioned this a few times, you fly over Europe and you take a look down at France or Germany, you won't see that much forest, but then the same politicians will fly over Brazil and look at the Amazon and be like, well, no trees can be cut down here. I mean, I know that we had all of our economic and, 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 and societal development because we were able to use agriculture in in a smart way and develop the continent as a result but beware brazil were to do the same to me like if you talk about climate justice and you apply some of the same principles well then at least have some like perspective and say like okay well we're not going to make trade policy dependent on the same standards for 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 climate policies that we set because that's just taking influence on countries that we have no business in and that the agreement there's seems a, seems to have been since the 1960s that we don't interfere in their policies.
2: There's a name for that. It's called climate colonialism. And mm. for those folks from that worldview, colonialism is bad, which I think is a pretty general, um, pretty general claim and f- fairly widely accepted claim. If we're going back historically, but yet those same people who are so passionate about social justice from that lens have no issue cruising around the world and telling India what they have to do uh, or telling other, I mean, not even India, because I wouldn't consider India um, to the same level of some of the most impoverished nations in the world. But like, can you just imagine like AOC showing up in one of the, the poorest countries in Africa and just being like, no, guys, you can't do this anymore. Like, sorry, sorry that you earn a dollar fifty a day, but like, you're going to have to cut that out. I'm and, sure
0: she would go there and tell one tribe that they're maybe better than another tribe
2: and,
1: and, uh, and, and it's and a bit and there might to be me, some some bad results. And it's a bit it's a bit of the bigotry of, of of low expectations as well. The the fact the idea that these countries don't have the self-realization that some of the impacts of climate change will hit them as well. No, we have to go and explain it to them and we have to set the targets for them uh so that they come to those realizations. I'm pretty sure that if you live in a crowded uh, indian or chinese city and you see the pollution levels you can figure out for yourself that there's something you should do about this it's not because the united nations send a resolution to you that you come to that conclusion i think people have that have that information as well and can process that information as well but just because they don't reach the exact same solution and that they end up building nuclear power plants instead of solar panels that now we have to go and lecture them i don't yeah i i agree there's there's um there's a, there's a, there's a lot of problems there There's one book I
0: would, uh, you know, bring up in this discussion. It's the book Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. Uh, And he discusses a lot the role of the IMF and the World Bank, and they've been giving out a lot of loans to different countries so that they can finance very large projects. Many times they are dams, uh, sometimes they're wind farms. And I have heard that in this discussion a bit, that many of these countries are significantly in debt. And sometimes it is because of these various projects. Other times it's because they've committed a lot more to social spending. Uh, but they just don't have the capital that we have in in other countries so they're not able to say we're going to build you know some kind of biofuel plant or some kind of wind farm it's going to have to come from uh, the Western world, whether it come through this agreement or private companies investing. I would much rather, as David said, have that be the private companies that are investing so that people also have jobs, you know not like a Chinese job where they bring in all their own people and build it on their own and then leave uh, but I'm wondering you know what that will kind of look like too because the Again, the financial thing, that's really where, where the rubber meets the road here. Oh man, never thought I'd use that. Uh, but that's fairly interesting because for us, we have all of the institutions, we have the capital, you know, we have the variations. I know in the U.S. last year, uh, renewables passed coal uh, in terms of consumption for the first time ever. And we're doing that on our own, not really because we're meeting any targets, that's just how the market is developing, that's what people are requesting, and I see that as only getting better.
2: Yeah, I mean... I I do see it getting better Um, I mean but it brings me back to the solar example and I see this all the time where uh, a community will bring forward a proposal to essentially build like community solar or connect residential solar panels to like a common grid and it'll get voted down by council because local residents think it's ugly and they don't like it (laughs) And so it's like nimbyism, nimbyism, as a, as a, um, uh, as a negative factor in regards to environmental outcomes. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a great, great talk with you guys. I think we're probably approaching our commercial break, but, um, I feel like we could have chatted for an hour.
0: Very true. A uh, good cross collaboration. Be sure to check out Bill's podcast, Consumer. Uh, we'll link to that in all of our show notes. I know we'll have Bill back on. And uh, for the Europeans, uh, check out Consumer Choice Radio as well.